You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 3. Welcome back to the Bonafide Needs Podcast. Last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Shoe v. Supervalue and Proctor v. Safeway, two significant cases with implications for the False Claims Act. Arnold and Porter Partners attended the session and presented their insights in a nearly real-time webinar at the end of the day. And we're going to present the meat of that discussion in this episode. Um, it's pre-recorded, but here to introduce the webinar and the firm's insights into the debate is one of the firm's FCA practice co-chairs, Tirza Lawler. Tirza, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Bill. Great to be back. Thanks. So you were actually able to attend the oral arguments last week. That's real exciting. So how how was that? So it was it was great. You know, uh, so Craig Margolis and I, uh, Craig's uh, another co-chair of our False Claims Act practice. You know, it's funny. We're members of the, uh, the bar of the Supreme Court. But the last time we were there in the court was for the Escobar argument back in 2016. So it's been a little while. So, you know, you you. Even if you're a lawyer with, you know, and you're admitted to the bar, you got to get there early. So we we were outside in line waiting to get in. Um, the first case uh, that was heard was not our the False Claims Act case. And so it was actually a religious liberties case. There was a lot of uh, outside attention. So we weren't sure if we were actually going to get into the courtroom. So for the first case, we were in the lawyer's lounge, which is essentially an overflow room where they... Um, have the audio playing. So we listened to the audio of the first case. The Then our case, the False Claims Act case was called, and we listened to just a few minutes from the lawyer's lounge. And then all of a sudden, we got shuttled into the, the courtroom, and um, we actually got front row seats. So we saw the majority of the argument just in front of Justices Barrett and uh, and Thomas. So it was it was a it was a pretty fun day, you know, for False Claims Act geeks to go and and get to get to see the court uh, in action. Yeah, a once a decade event. So, was there anything that surprised you about the oral arguments? I know you get into a lot of the uh, the meat during the webinar, so I don't want to steal the thunder. But what was your some of your takeaways? Was there anything uh, surprising? Some things that they latched onto during the the arguments that maybe you weren't expecting. Sure. Good. Good question. And you're, and you're right, Bill. We do get into it in the in the webinar. But I'll just as a preview, pretty quickly right out of the gate, there seem to be kind of two groups of of uh, justices in terms of the way that they were framing the issue. So there was a group of justices who, frankly, kept referring to the issue presented as 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 an easy case based on the text of the statute, whereas there were some other justices who seemed to be more in the camp of it, thinking of it as a as a hard case. And I don't want to I don't want to give away uh, what 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 our listeners will hear when they get to the podcast. But for me, that was surprising because, frankly, there's been so much interest in this case. Um, you know, again, the Supreme Court doesn't take up significant False Claims Act cases frequently. As I mentioned, the last time they did this, it was for the Escobar case in 2016. But there was a lot of interest in terms of amicus briefs that were filed. Um, We did a series in our keynotes blog where we reported on um, several of the amicus briefs. So there was a lot of interest in the case. And um, again, so it was a little surprising that there were, you know, a few justices that really did view this as a, quote, easy case. Any sense on the timing of the decision? We're already pretty close to the end of the this court session, so I guess we won't have to wait too long. Right. All signs are the expectation is that the court will rule um, before the end of the term, which is at the end of June. So we should we should hear from them soon. Though of course we know we know they're quite busy, but um, everybody's everybody's watching the, the the FCA bar, and of course we're also waiting for a ruling on the other False Claims Act case that was argued earlier in the term, the Polanski case, that relates to the scope of the Department of Justice's authority to dismiss a non-intervened QTAM. So lots happening in the court this term um, on the False Claims Act. Okay, well, we will leave it there. And uh, right after this, we're going to start playing the audio portion of the webinar. And the uh, speakers were, that was you, Tirza. And also, who else did we have on the webinar? 
Right. Thank you. Yes, uh, folks, we were in in such a rush getting back from court. I mean, literally, we got back to the office about 30 minutes before the webinar was set to start because the morning just took a lot longer than we were expecting. So we did not introduce ourselves. So the voices that you will hear on the webinar are mine, you know, I'm Tirza Lawler, and then my two partners, Craig Margolis, who I mentioned, the other co-chair of the practice group. And then the third is our other False Claims Act partner, Christian Sheehan. We all spend a significant portion of our practice counseling clients, helping them with False Claims Act matters. Great. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you for taking the time to introduce the webinar. And uh, our listeners, I'm, you'll be getting a lot out of this. Uh, I've already heard it. And it was a very, very meaty discussion. So it's very interesting to hear your all of your takes on what happened during the oral arguments. So thank you, Tears, for taking the time. And we'll go right to the webinar now. So thanks again for everyone for joining us. I would really love to tell you we're going to make a prediction about how this case is going to come out. We're a bottom line up front. We're not going to, we're, yeah, we're really not going to do that. But we are going to tell you all highlights from the argument. We'll jump right into it. I, look, we're assuming a fair bit of background in terms of you know, knowledge of the folks who are kind enough to join us about what the issues are. But just as a brief level said, let's just quickly frame the issue for you all. And Christian, can you do that for us? And then we can start, we'll get to the argument in short order, I promise. Sure. So, I mean, I think as everybody knows, right, the, the FCA requires a defendant to act knowingly, which it defines as acting with actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard for the truth or falsity of the information. A number of circuits, including here, it was a case from the Seventh Circuit, have uh, adopted the holding from the Supreme Court's decision in Safeco, which was not a False Claims Act case, have adopted that holding in the False Claims Act context. Um, and that holding was that where a defendant's conduct was objectively reasonable and it was not warned away from its interpretation by authoritative guidance, it could not act knowingly. And Safeco was a case under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. So in these cases, in Schutte and Proctor, the Seventh Circuit in, a, in split two to one decisions applied Safeco to the False Claims Act and held that an inability to meet the Safeco test in the context of an ambiguous law means there's no actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard. The relators argued that adopting that holding in the FCA context would, re, would write actual knowledge and deliberate ignorance out of the statute. And what the Seventh Circuit said was, no, you might suspect or believe that a claim is false, but you can't actually know that it's false when the law is unclear. Um, so it doesn't write actual knowledge out of the statute. Actual knowledge still has a um, significant role to play in cases where you're talking about um, falsity based on um, facts, not based on ambiguous law. And then the second piece of the Safeco inquiry is, if you do have an objectively reasonable interpretation, was there authoritative guidance that would have warned you away from that interpretation? And on that point, the Seventh Circuit said that the guidance has to have a high degree of specificity to control and echoing Safeco said that only certain sources qualify as authoritative guidance, specifically circuit court precedent or, uh, or authoritative guidance from the relevant agency, at least in our view, right, every circuit to have considered the issue has come out one way, and that's applying Safeco to the False Claims Act, despite what seems to be the absence of a circuit split, the court granted cert in these cases and heard argument today. We're not making predictions here, but the way that the question presented is framed is at least shows what at least some of the justices thought was the nub of the issue, which is really sidestepping to some extent the whole question really that's presented by cases like Safeco about when you have an objectively reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous provision can, as you as a matter of law, have committed fraud to when it can, can a defendant's contemporaneous subjective understandings or beliefs about the lawfulness of conduct, um, are they relevant to knowledge, right? So it skips out on the issue of objective sort of uh, this, this, this idea of an objective interpretation of an ambiguous provision altogether, just sort of 
takes False Claims Act straight up as knowledge and saying when is knowledge relevant and when it isn't. Do you want to run down again quickly the amicus briefs? I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time talking to them other than we are very proud in our team to have <laughs> Okay, just easy, easy, okay. So uh, before we get to, to that, the, um, the Solicitor General, right? So essentially the United States chimed in on this issue and unsurprisingly, they came out in support of the subjective standard that the relators are, um, are suggesting the court should adopt. And so the, the government said Safeco doesn't apply in the FCA, subjective intent is relevant under all three versions of knowledge in the statute and that a defendant cannot avoid FCA liability by identifying wrong, but reasonable justifications after the fact. There were several other amicus briefs filed in support of the petitioners. A common theme uh, that we saw in a lot of them is that we do not want to allow a defendant to avoid liability by finding a smart lawyer to come up with a post hoc interpretation that a court would say is reasonable even though at the time the defendant actually knew or, or had a subjective belief that the later interpretation was actually wrong. There were a number of amicus briefs filed in support of the um, Safeway and SuperValue, including um, one that Craig and Christian and some of our other colleagues drafted on behalf of the chamber, um, American Medical Association, Pharma, a number of different groups, there were a number of other uh, um, amicus briefs filed in support of defendants. A common theme in all of those is was, I guess, maybe two, two main themes, right? One, which Christian has already touched on, that if there is this uh, ambiguity, how can the defendant actually know that their interpretation is wrong? Second, companies in the defense bar, healthcare, life sciences, all raise significant concerns that when they're operating in highly regulated, complex um, regimes, it's often very difficult to actually determine what the right interpretation is. And so there's a significant concern from industry that if the subjective intent standard is endorsed by the court, that it could be kind of open the, you know, Katie bar the doors in terms of potential FCA liability for, um, for industry. So I guess we should talk about the argument now. <laughs> uh, all right. Again, we're not going to even remotely try to mind read for the justices, um, but you know, obviously, we can report as accurately as possible in terms of what some of the questions were. And there seemed to be a fairly vigorous debate about what I'll call, and again, I want to invite my colleagues to jump in, um, especially if I mangle any of this, but at any time, sort of the easy case and the hard case. And I will, I'm going to roughly group, again, by questions that were asked. Justices, and I'll call it the easy case camp, using air quotes purposely here, Justices Gorsuch, Justice Kagan, Justice Jackson, maybe a question or two from Justice Sotomayor along these lines. And then on the hard camp, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and maybe even a couple of questions here and there. Um, from the chief, although not, maybe not quite as, as clearly. And what do I mean by hard case and easy? The easy case, and it's not going to surprise you given our views on this, as you well know, we would say making this an easy case, there's nothing easy about it. And frankly, the SG, when the SG argued, not the actual Solicitor General, she argued the first case, but Mr. Stewart, Malcolm Stewart, for the SG's office, conceded it was a hard case and during the argument. But in the easy case, it's, look, the statute says knowingly. Knowingly in common law always means you consider intent and subjective intent. So how can we interpret this False Claims Act to not allow consideration of subjective intent? I mean, guys, do you, do you roughly agree? I mean, if we're going to get into more of the questions in more detail, but isn't that really like the easy case questions where this is an easy case? It's, it's the only question is, isn't intent relevant as by a matter of statute? And the allegation is that the defendants knew that the usual and customary pricing was not what they had actually reported and therefore reverse. Is that I know I think that's right. And I think it was I believe it was Justice Kagan, right, who, who read two sentences from that was the, Justice Jackson. The Justice, Justice Jackson. Jackson. See, I actually wasn't in the room because I'm not admitted to the bar and couldn't get in, but but, um, but you should listen to maybe a, a third of what he says. <laughs> yeah. But that's all right. 
So Justice Jackson, right, she read two sentences from the Seventh Circuit majority opinion, which were, right, just the very basic part of the holding without any of the nuance. Right, which is ba was basically is subjective intent ever relevant under the False Claims Act, which no one is taking the position that it's not. But that was, so yes, I mean, I think that Craig's exactly right. That was, that was how um, a number of the justices were, were framing it. And it might be worth just, my, might be worth putting, going back to the slide with the question, the way the question was framed, because yes. it was, it was, if you, if you guys look at how the question was framed and Craig alluded to it when we were doing the intro, it kind of teed it up for the one camp, the easy camp to focus on it this way in terms of surely the very simple question is, isn't knowledge relevant given the text of the statute? And, you know, the question presented kind of sets it up. And then Justice Gorsuch being considered at least a textualist, right? Not entirely surprising. You know, he, he was very focused in terms of what the the fact that there is a knowledge requirement in a common law one would consider a subjective intent as probative of knowledge. On the hard case side, it was a greater degree of questions that were targeted at not just the binary question, do you consider intent or, or not consider intent, but much more about the sort of the close case. So we'll talk about some of the examples. Justice Kavanaugh used the example of three scenarios, A, B, and C. We'll talk about that in a little more detail in a second, so please hold on to that. I think it's Justice Alito that first raised the question of 51% versus 49%. Justice Thomas raised some questions about, really raised interestingly in the context of falsity, not intent, about, um, which was a theme we'll get back to because it was picked up in a number of the justices' questions actually about falsity uh, as the element where this was, a, this was a difficult issue, which is, look, where it's close call, right? How can you really consider it to be false? How can you actually consider it to be fraud if it's a, it's a very close call and let's say there's somebody at a company that may think that maybe a 51% chance we're going to turn out to be wrong, but there's a 49% chance we're going to be right. Let's go with the 49%. Can we be liable under the false claims act? Should that, should that um, party be liable under the false claims act? So that is really the, the hard case camp and is in a, like a, in a number of different arguments that justices to some extent debating um, each other through the, the questions level that the parties. What was very interesting is that it's, it's clearly, again, not surprising coming to us. It's clear from us, excuse me, it's clearly not an easy case. And both Relators Council and Government Council tripped up on even when they were being thrown um, what I think particularly Justice Kagan laughed at one point were softballs that I've never, I've never seen somebody resist so hard when, I'm, when, when they're trying to be helped. I think she said something along those lines. Even when they were being thrown by the, what I'll call the easy, we've called the easy camp uh, softballs, they were resisting them to some extent because the government and the Relators Bar both clearly wanted, if, if they can ditch Safeco's application to the False Claims Act, they obviously want to push the boundary of that as far as they can go to places where, as I think will become clearer when we start describing some, some more of the questions, uh, at least some of the justices really struggled with. So the first question out of the gate, now, oh, so division of, of time, right? So Relators Council had 20 minutes, the SG then had 10, the, I guess the respondents had 30. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I guess related to reserve sometime, but it was really, there was, there were no questions during rebuttal um, whatsoever. So really it's the action was during the initial presentations from the petitioner side and then the respondents. Uh, so Justice Thomas, but right out of the gate, he was asking questions really directed at falsity. So he asked question, um, if there's no guidance about what usual and customary means. Now, by the way, if you're not familiar with the details of the actual cases under, you know, the, the underlying cases, the, it had to do with drug price reporting. And usual and customary is the, the statutory or regulatory phrase that's the one at issue. So, the, you know, the, the, the underlying debate is what legally usual and customary meant, which is why that's a phrase that the justices sort of keyed into a few times during the argument. So when Justice Thomas asked, if no guidance, 
is out there is what usual and customary means. And for example, maybe there may be, can be read in different ways in different places by different states. Is it still possible to find it false? Now that's interesting, right? Because that's not a scienter question. That's a falsity question. And it shows that Justice Thomas out of the gate, at least is asking questions suggesting that he's thinking about it really more in the falsity rubric than in the scienter rubric. And he continued to press those questions and he was asking whether there was a baseline from which one could objectively, how far could you objectively deviate from that, from a baseline meaning of usual and customary to make it false? It's funny that I got more of the justice questions than I got the relator's answers. Did anybody <laughs> actually get down the, you know, what the relator tried to do to parent the justice's questions? Yeah, yeah, no, he said, he said, he said, yes. He says, you know, even in the absence of guidance, the, the terms usual and customary have meaning. And so, yes, there can be liability. There can be a false statement if you don't don't report your usual and customary prices. Yeah, I think they also tried to move off of falsity pretty quickly, um, saying a couple times this case isn't about falsity. There's no dispute about falsity. It's a, it's a scientific case. Yeah, I think he did say, that's right. He just said, you have to assume it's false, essentially. In fact, I think one of the justices, I don't remember if it was Justice Kagan, maybe even picked up, well, there's already a finding of falsity, which, which there isn't, there wasn't, that's not the posture, but the posture below is that falsity had been, had been alleged. So I guess technically it's taken as true, but there was no finding of falsity below at this point. Right. I mean, the, the issue in both in the district court and in the Seventh Circuit was, was the enter. Justice Kavanaugh took up a question then, and this is where he introduced this concept of sort of three scenarios, which are called A, B, and C. He posed a hypothetical, let's say there are three ways to interpret a, let's call it a regulation. And they're in order of you know, least aggressive, middle of the road, most aggressive. And so C would be the one that pushes the envelope the furthest. Posited, but it's still a reasonable interpretation, but it pushes it the furthest. And he posed the question, part of his hypothetical company, goes with C because its objective is to make money. And why should there be liable? Why should, why should a company in that scenario be liable under the False Claims Act, even if all three are objectively reasonable? One of my friends here give us the Relators Council's answer to that. Well, they said that there, there may be liability even in that circumstance. It could be actual knowledge or deliberate ignorance. And I think Justice Kavanaugh seemed to then express some surprise at that answer and then continued to press. And the Relators, Council then said something to the effect of, while the False Claims Act isn't designed to allow companies to identify every reasonable interpretation and pick the one that's most profitable, they're supposed to identify the best interpretation and follow that. One of the other things that Justice Kavanaugh said at this point, um, which he circled back to later in, during the argument was, well, doesn't this happen all the time in the executive branch, right? That there, when in terms of national security, that the federal government is looking at a range of potential options and there's likely internal debate. And then, you know, ultimately the government's going to choose one option, but isn't that essentially kind of similar? And again, it, he picked it up later, um, I think when the government, I think when Mr. Stewart was, mm -hmm. was asking questions and they kind of went down this rabbit trail, well, okay, so if a government lawyer that makes a representation in a court based on an interpretation that is not necessarily the majority interpretation, you know, is that a false representation to the court? And the response was, well, no, because that's not, uh, that's just lawyering, essentially. I'm paraphrasing, that's just lawyering and it's not making a representation on an, on an invoice. Yes, so all right, I, I'm gonna go a little bit in order here. I'll get back to some of the things that, that Mr. Stewart said. I agree with Kierza. It's clear that Justice Kavanaugh had a hypothetical in mind. He was sort of saving for the government, but he foreshadowed it in, in, in talking to, uh, in, or sorry, questioning Relators Council. But then Justice Kagan, you know, again, was now trying to throw a little bit of uh, a life preserver to Relators Council to, to, to reframe the argument. Like that, that's not really what this case is about. This case isn't about the ABC. Case is about when the defendant knows it's wrong, right? The, the defendant knows it's wrong. How can subjective intent be ignored under the False Claims Act, right? If they contemporaneously knew they weren't doing the right thing, um, which is different than obviously the hypothetical that was being presented by 
Justice Kavanaugh, which he then returned back to. So you really had the, the two justices asked in questions that were almost on different planes altogether. Justice Gorsuch asked a question that seemed to set up a dichotomy in his head between actual knowledge and recklessness. He was somewhat suggesting, it seems, through his questions that, for example, this uh, hypothetical scenario that Justice Kavanaugh was positing was a recklessness case, right? That could be potentially a recklessness case, which he somehow was differentiating from an actual knowledge case, which, again, I, I'm not sure, doc, I mean, obviously, they'll write their opinion and figure out how they would, if they, if they go down this road, how they would divide it out. But I'm not sure doctrinally how that would matter, because Safeco applies to both recklessness and actual knowledge. In fact, there was a debate at one point during the argument where I think Justice Gorsuch is jumping ahead a little bit to when Carter Phillips was up, and Justice Gorsuch was posing the same question. This is about, you know, Safeco is really just about knowledge. And Carter Phillips came back and said no, and he had a quote from Safeco that says knowledge and recklessness. So Justice Gorsuch, again, from his question, seemed to be trying to draw a distinction between an actual knowledge case as opposed to a recklessness case. The actual knowledge case, again, being the easy case theoretically, right? Let's say everybody sitting around a conference table has a contemporaneous view that whatever position they're advancing is wrong. Right? It is wrong. And then later on, a lawyer cooks up an objectively reasonable um, an argument that makes it objectively reasonable. So. Everybody sitting around the conference table thinks it's wrong at the time. Lawyer five years later, defending a false claims act case, comes up with an argument that is objectively reasonable. That's an actual knowledge case. How can you ignore actual knowledge in that circumstance? That seemed to be, am I getting this right, guys? That seemed yeah. to be mm -hmm. what Justice Gorsuch was positing through some of his questions. Yeah, I think that's right. And then Justice Kagan, I mean, picked up on that framing, right? And she said, the bottom line is the question, however we define recklessness, we're not being asked to do that today. We're being asked if someone has a particular interpretation at the time and then later comes up with an objectively reasonable argument, can there be liability in that circumstance, right? And so, and I think a number of the justices asked questions where they were focused on that narrow framing of the issue and didn't seem as inclined to, to go into recklessness. Yeah, not to editorialize, but of course they're being asked to apply on recklessness. So, um, of course, whatever opinion they'll write, they'll write, but it'll be interesting if they carve out recklessness in some form or fashion to decide at a later time, which just seems like it'll inject more uncertainty into false things like jurisprudence if there's one intense standard for knowledge and a different intense standard for recklessness. I mean, uh, to the extent that they were equating recklessness with the hard case, it, it is possible that you, there could be an opinion that does carve out recklessness and leaves that for another day. Right. Which, and then, to, to Craig's point, I think would, would create a mess. All right, so then Justice Alito picked up its sort of variation on Justice Kavanaugh's scenario. Justice Alito said, let's say the law could be X or Y. And when I say law could be, like an interpretation of an ambiguous provision. It could either be X or mean X or mean Y. And let's say there's a 49% chance it's going to be X and a 51% chance it's going to be Y, 49% is good for the company, 51% is bad for the company. So let's say that's their prediction, right? And turns out in the end it's 51, like turns out after the fact they're wrong. And let's say they thought there was a 51% chance they were wrong, but they thought there were a 49% chance they were right. So can there be false claims act liability in that scenario, which again seems to be another reframing of the hard case. What did, what did we get from Relators Council as their best answer for that one? Well, I think the response was, well, that's not our case. Right. Right. That, but if a, if a company, you know, and then try to reframe it as if the company takes the position that it thinks is probably wrong, then in their view, then that would, that would be sufficient for actual knowledge or for rec recklessness or deliberate indifference if they didn't seek um, clarification from the government about their interpretation. Right. And I think, and we'll get to that, I think, in a little bit, but then there was a lot of discussion about well, what does the company have to do? Do they have to show their work if there are different possible interpretations? And what do they have to say? Uh, what does a company have to say to the government about sort of its internal deliberative process in, in reaching uh, a decision where there are multiple there are multiple paths? Yeah, and I think it's Malcolm Stewart that first is the one I think that may have raised this idea for the SG's office, show your work. And that was sort of the idea he was sort of positing in some of his answers, just to jump ahead a little, 
that let's say there is a debate and let's say there's 51 49 even that somehow when you give your answer you're supposed to present both sides <laughs> like in other words when one bills when supposed to present that there's 51 percent think that you could build it this way and 49 percent think you could build it that way I mean, I, I, I'm not making that up. It was some version of essentially what he was suggesting in terms of, in fact, he even got the question, like Justice Alito, I think actually Mr. Phelps said, is there even an opportunity to show your work? Right. Because it's sort of, I mean, how, you know, as we know, a lot of these bills are on forms. Like how, how is it do you show that there might be a debate in terms of how you interpret a revision? In fact, the SG also suggested that it was incumbent on the contractor to go get an answer, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. You know, if there's a doubt, get it. Go get an answer. Don't go ahead and just make your predictions about how things might turn out. Go ask the government what it thinks. And a response to that, which I believe um, the lawyer representing Super Valley and State, what was his name? Carter. Carter. That he he did mention one of the amicus briefs represented a number of pharma pharma clients and um, um, healthcare providers. And made has you know made the point I think pretty compellingly that in their experience they've often sought guidance from the government and those requests have have fallen on deaf ears. That's a quote from the from the brief. All right. So jumping ahead a little bit, Justice Kavanaugh really he picked up on this fifty one percent hypothesis, and then he actually asked the Relators Council, "Did you ever win a case when you thought you had the wrong argument?" And he's sort of, again, getting at the same idea, right? It's, it's, it's the variations on a theme. You know, you, you may think, you may think you're wrong as a lawyer, but nonetheless, zealously represent your client, present an argument, and then be like, oh, look, I won. Relator got, got a laugh because he said, no, I'm waiting for that to happen. It hasn't happened to me yet. So going forward here a little bit, the chief then also picked up on some of the questions about falsity, right? So again, it was interesting because the chief asked about when a statement or representation is made about something is truth or false, there could be a legal element to it, all right? And so what was he getting at there? So let's, so, so one of the issues in the case, for example, has to do with the usual and customary price. Should it be $20 or $4? I think was the figure they were throwing around, if I've got it right. Mm -hmm. um, if I sell you a horse, use a Civil War analogy, if I sell you a horse, or sorry, I contracted to sell you a horse, I build you for a horse, you paid for a horse, then I give you a mule, right? That's just factually false, right? Those are the, and there's Civil War cases to go back and all that. Legal falsity is, it's not, whether it's $20 or $4 on usual and customary, it depends on how you legally interpret usual and customary. Right? It's not a straight factual falsity issue. It's not like it's four dollars, you know, two plus two equals five. It's is it four dollars or twenty dollars, depending how you interpret the regulation, which is appears to be what the, the chief was getting at. Which is look, if it, if there's a legal judgment baked into that, how can it be false? So I think that was the for at least according to my notes, that was the first question that was asked to the um yeah. to the to the government lawyer. I did, I did think it was interesting that you know Safeco has played a central was it played a central role in the briefing, at least according to my notes, the first time it really came up was towards the tail end of the relator's argument, um, where there was just there was a question about why was were the defendants wrong basically to rely on the Safeco footnote, and then there was sort of a, the answer so many reasons that you know Safeco was decided in a different context, but. For you know the case that was sort of the cent that played this central role in the briefing, um, it didn't really feature in the either the relator's argument or the government argument. It you know featured much more uh, more central role in Carter Phillips' argument when he when he got up. I, but I was just struck by how long it took for Safeco to really come up. Okay, so running through some things quickly here to make sure we get it all. Um, I think again, Mr. Stewart raised this idea of showing your work. We already talked about. The chief actually posed some questions to the SG based on that. Why should a company have to show its work if it, for example, if the issue is 51 to 49%? He, in one of his questions, had suggested that Mr. Stewart was making it too easy. Does the company have to disclose if it's 51 to 49%? For example, if, if let's say an issue goes to the court and it's decided five to four, 
would it have been unreasonable if one of the parties had taken the position that for the justice uh, I don't know that there was a satisfactory answer from Mr. Stewart on that one that I can recall. But again, it's all variations on a theme, obviously, in terms of the hard cases versus the easy case idea. No, and I think um, that idea about presenting an issue to a court and then the court deciding it five to four, I mean, there was that, that theme came up again, again, in the context of falsity. Um, there was a question that was, that was essentially, well, when a court decides an issue, it's not, you don't think of the, the other, the losing position as being false. So it's weird to think of a legal interpretation of an ambiguous law, right, as false if it turns out to not be the interpretation that's adopted. So again, it was sort of the court, I think, struggling a little bit with this. Is this, is this a falsity issue or a scienter issue? As yours alluded to, Justice Kavanaugh did get back to the hypothetical. Governments debates positions all the time. Um, what if the, you know, essentially people are sitting in a room in the government and they think, you know, they may have a very aggressive legal position, but don't they sometimes just decide to go with it, right? The federal government could interpret something even if they don't think it's right, but it's the position they take and they go forward. Now, let's say now that you bring that to a court and the government presents that as a position to the court. Um, Justice Kavanaugh's question was, why isn't that fraud on the court? I thought that was a pretty good question. Now, Justice Gorsuch sort of reorients again back to sort of the easy case idea, which is this, what if, what if there's no good faith basis for the position, right? It might be objectively reasonable, but it's not what the company itself thought. They had no good faith basis for it. And he actually, what I have in my notes is he said, all we have to do is to, to decide in this case is if there's a subjective belief that a position was actually false, but then they bill it. Can you ignore this objective belief? I mean, that is the most succinct framing of the easy case. You're all sitting in the room. You all decide it's not right. You put it forward anyway. Some brilliant lawyer comes up with a rationale to make it objectively reasonable. Can you just ignore the people sitting in the room? And that, that series of questions, that's the way that Justice Gorsuch was thinking about it. Why don't we get on to go? I mean, Justice Jackson also asked at one point, why is this a hard case? I think there was a question from Justice Barrett at this point. Too. I think this was the first time we heard from Justice Barrett. There was. I think she might be the only question she asked. Mm -hmm. So I believe what she was asking was if we were to rule that as long as there was no belief at the time that it was, I think, I guess, unreasonable, is that sufficient? I think she was trying to get um, confirmation from the SG that if we rule kind of narrowly and say, as long as there was no kind of subjective belief that what we were doing was wrong at the time, is that sufficient for you? Yeah, and then I, I think the answer was something to the effect of, well, it's a, it a step in the right direction. And then I think she followed up and said, well, it sounds like you're not happy if we classify this case at one end of the spectrum. I didn't get the answer to right. that specific question, but I think it again showed is the government trying to adopt the most aggressive possible position here, saw that the court might be going in a different direction, was trying to pull it back. Right, so yeah. I think together we've got this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and Justice thing. Jackson jumped in at the same point, but the fair point, yeah, I think the idea is Justice Barrett seemed to be throwing out a trial balloon a little bit. You know, the narrowest ruling here is, I'm paraphrasing here, but what if we sent it back and said, you can't just ignore subjective belief, and we say nothing else, you know, and, and just reverse. Isn't that you win, isn't that good enough? And the government didn't particularly like that, but then at the end of the day, when Push said, Push said if all the court does is correct the miscon misconception mm -hmm. of the False Claims Act, that's a step in the right direction. Right. Though they would prefer greater, greater clarification. Prefer greater clarity. Right. right. Uh, all right, so let's, um, let's get on to Carter Phillips. He said, right out the gate, let me start by making this a hard case. So he obviously <laughs> tried to pitch it immediately to what we call sort of been calling the hard case camp. He said, this is not a case about post hoc rationalizations and that's HALO. Okay, we haven't talked about HALO yet. All right, so there, there, there are essentially two cases that precede this debate and neither of them involves the False Claims Act. One is Safeco that involves the Fair Credit Reporting Act and that's the one that all the circuits have relied on to, to interpret knowledge under the False Claims Act. Essentially, Safeco is the case we already alluded to that holds 
uh, you don't consider subjective evidence of intent when there's an objectively reasonable interpretation of a regulatory or legal provision. There's no authoritative guidance to where uh, warrants a new way. Safeco. Halo, patent infringement case. And the question there is whether um, you could have willful infringement, the penalties for willful infringement of a patent. And in that case, goes the other way all the and says, no, of course you consider subjective intent when determining whether there's been willful infringement. So you got Halo and you got Safeco and the two aren't readily reconcilable. Uh, except that Halo is really the post hoc case. And I think that's, you know, Mr. Phillips sort of said that right out of the, the that's Halo. The post hoc rationalization case is Halo. Meaning that's the case as we talked about to all the people in the room versus the, the later, you know, cooked up report position, which I think he was trying to get away from. All right. So he did launch in almost immediately, which I don't think we're going to cover uh, in detail, sort of getting into, not, I won't call it the weeds, but more about the, you know, the usual and customary and what it means, et cetera. Lack of guidance. Lack of guidance. Justice Gorsuch came in and said, that's an excellent summary for a jury, for a judge or a jury argument. That's not really our issue. Our issue is the narrow question. Can the only evidence admitted against a client be, the way he put it, is objective proof versus internal proof? And he said that's a hard argument based on the statute. So he was bringing in his textualism. What he seemed to be alluding to is objective proof is, okay, look, is it objectively reasonable or not objectively reasonable? Has an agency said anything about it or not said anything about it? Versus internal proof, which is people sitting in the conference room. Or writing emails. Or writing emails, <laughs> right? Mr. Phillips came right up and said, well, you're going to have to deal with Safeco. He basically framed it. He's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to deal with Safeco? That's not what Safeco says. He presented that right up there. How can you be a knowing or reckless violator when you follow a reasonable view? And then, there, you know, this came up a couple of times. Justice Jackson did it. Even Justin Gorsuch did it once talking about, well, what do you instruct a jury? And which we agree with what Mr. Phillips said back, which is the whole point of this is it never gets to a jury. The jury's never going to be instructed on objective reasonableness of a position and then asked to exclude and not consider any evidence of intent that's contrary, right? The whole point is, if it's objectively reasonable, it never gets to the jury. The defendant wins on either a motion to dismiss or summary judgment, right? Which is the point that Carter made. This is also the first time where he made the privilege waiver point, right? right? Which, is, which is, if that is a question of fact, then necessarily a company is going to have to waive its privilege in order to produce evidence of what it subjectively thought at the time. Um, that's a point that's made by you guys in the chamber brief and some of the other um, briefs in support of the, um, the defendants. Yeah. Um, just, unfortunately, it didn't get much traction with the justices, I didn't think. No, I mean, according to my notes, Justice Gorsuch pretty immediately pushed back and said, well, you could easily imagine a case where the internal communications debating different options are among business people. Or not and then that wouldn't right. present any of the concerns uh, about privilege that you're talking about. Um, Justice Kagan posed a hypothetical, which, I, which began with, what if, again, if the defendant knows it's wrong, but he goes on dot, dot, dot. It was, again, he was framing the same hypothetical of what I'll call the, you know, the easy case camp, which, again, I think that, that Mr. Phillips resisted by essentially saying, but that's not, it, again, that's not our, that's not this case. This is not a case where there was internal or external knowledge that the interpretation of usual and customary that was adopted by the pharmacies was not objectively reasonable or that they had taken a different view. Okay, I have a question here. I think it was from Justice um, Jackson. If we say Safeco either doesn't say what you think it says or doesn't actually apply, do you lose? Which is a pretty, was a pretty direct way of saying, what if we just distinguish Safeco out of existence? And I think that was picked up. I don't remember now if it was Justice Kagan or Justice Sotomayor who also said, what if we can find Safeco to its facts? Right. And I think, I mean, I was just listening to the audience, so I'm not sure whether it was Justice Kagan or Justice Sotomayor, but um, suggested that Halo had, in fact, done that. Uh, there, was, there were a few jokes about one person in the room knowing what Halo actually meant, and I, because, because the chief had written the opinion, but then there was a suggestion that Safeco, the footnote in Safeco that Seventh Circuit had relied on, was pretty confusing, and that Halo had already started to walk it back and Okay, I think you guys are seeing what the themes are here. Mr. Phillips tried to 
distinguish Halo away as being patent specific. So he was trying to say, look, that's patent. It, there were, there, it, it didn't involve common law fraud in the way that Safeco does. By the way, Safeco does say very clearly talks about common law concepts, I think, of fraud is when, when, it, when it means. The entire opinion is about The entire opinion law. is. So to common say that it really doesn't is a little bit of rewriting of what Safeco actually says, but the court gets to do that. But there was, you know, there was certainly back and forth about, okay, do we go with Halo or do we go with Safeco? Which, which, of, the, which of the two are we going to apply here to the False Claims Act? I already mentioned Justice Alito had asked the question, you know, the government talks about, you know, the problem is you get to show your work. Did the defendants here show their work? Do they have an opportunity to show their work? The response was that they had been audited thousands of times, that there had been a number of different entities that had taken the position that the respondents took here in terms of the way they defined usual and customary. So in that sense, I suppose they show their work. I'm not sure whether Justice Alito and Mr. Felt are talking past each other. Because when, when I heard the question, I thought maybe what Justice Alito had in mind was, you know, when you bill a lot of these times, it's just on a form. You just report a number. You don't show your work. It's not like a mad test. But Justice Alito didn't follow up. So I'm you know, not clear as to what what he, what he meant by his question. Yeah, before that exchange, there was kind, kind of a little chuckle from the crowd because uh, Justice Sotomayor was asking, well, why don't we just make it easy and say, essentially, rule that subjective intent is relevant. Then uh, the lawyer for the defendant said, well, I don't think that's what Congress intended. And <laughs> Justice Sotomayor said, well, you know, I think if anybody knows what Congress intended, it's probably Senator Grassley. And he clearly disagrees with you because Senator Grassley wrote an amicus brief in support of the position that, that the subjective intent standard. Yeah, and then, and then, and then Carter Phillips' yeah, answer yeah. was that Senator Grassley's views are due the same weight as any individual yeah, senator, and senator when you're looking at legislative intent. And of course, so. you couldn't get it on the, in the video, but they got a pretty big smile from Justice Kavanaugh um, mm -hmm. when he gave that answer. Now, okay, one last thing here from Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, I'll say, Justice Thomas brought up again, he asked, I think, one question toward the end. Thomas, again, reframed this question about falsity he had asked previously, but it's essentially the same, you know, the same question he had asked before. How can it, can it be false? Justice Kavanaugh now asked a very interesting question. He said, if you lose the case, right, what would the business community prefer, right? Mm -hmm. is, it a, is it better to have a narrow loss than if it's just the, what he called the post hoc theory. And of course, you know, what, what is, what is Mr. Phillips going to say to that? So he, he had, he didn't concede by any stretch, but of course, if, if, the, if the question is, if you're going to lose, how do you want to lose? He said the post hoc loss would be the preferable loss, meaning that, you know, again, the narrowest loss would be the halo idea. It would literally be the, everybody, as I've already said a few times here, all the evidence is clear that the company had a clear belief at the time about X, and then it presents Y later to, you know, as a post-hoc rationalization. That is the, in the easy case camp, that's probably the narrowest loss. If the case gets, if it gets reversed, the narrowest loss is trying to interpret it in that way, that, that it's, yes, subjective intent can be considered, but the question is under what circumstances. Okay. Again, we're not going to make predictions, as I told you. There's obviously, at least from some corners of the court, though, some significant skepticism, perhaps not surprising because they actually did take the case. It'll be interesting to see when, it, you know, again, like in Escobar, they did find that implied false certification theory is valid, but at the same time, you know, they said a lot of other things about what materiality and falsity mean or don't mean. So here... As far as we know, this is the first time the court's ever taken up knowledge under the False Claims Act. So regardless of how it comes out, we think they're likely to, to tell us something interesting about what the Sienter standard actually is. And maybe some of these distinctions in terms of recklessness versus actual knowledge and this post hoc rationalization, you know, as revealed by the justices' questions, it's issues they're thinking about that depending on who writes the opinion and how it comes out, it hopefully will be fleshed out some. I will say there was no discussion today about authoritative guidance. Yeah. Which actually, is something that, that would, you know, 
was featured pretty prominently in all of the briefs, right? What, what qualifies as, as authoritative guidance? If there is um, an ambiguity, what is sufficient? Because the Seventh Circuit had said it needs to be at least circuit court law or, or guidance from the federal agency. No discussion about that today at all. Yeah, obviously that's step two. So if the court ends up not buying step one, you don't really get to step two, right? But again, I'm making no prediction of how it's going to turn out. But there was no, there were no questions about, you know, this question about what constitutes authoritative guidance. I mean, fair, it wasn't in the question presented. That, but neither, but neither was falsity. And there were a number of questions from justices, and that may be the angle. I mean, look, if, you know, not to make lemonade. If this doesn't turn out the way the defense bar would prefer. Yeah, the, the case to come might be, well, can something actually be false just because it's wrong? But Justice Kavanaugh actually said that. I mean, he was talking about, look, usually if you have a, dis a dispute over a legal issue, and you know, when we, he said when we justices are talking about it, the party's position might be inaccurate, it could be wrong, it could be erroneous, we could disagree with it. We don't call it false. So that was an interesting little window, potentially at least into his thinking, which I think some of the other justices were picking up on. So a battleground to come may be this question about objective falsity. And something false just because in hindsight, a court disagrees with one party's interpretation of a disputed legal provision or legal duty. Which, I mean, there have been cert petitions pretty recently on that issue, but now that the court has taken this, I mean, maybe they're, they'd be more interested in Maybe those petitions. We'll see. Yep. Uh, what was the Carol Alternatives? Was one. Carol Alternatives was the Third Circuit um, that rejected objective falsity, and then a Sarah Care case from the Eleventh Circuit endorsed an objective falsity rule. Okay. All right, folks. Well, look. Thanks for bearing with us. We tried to be as sharp and on the ball as we could in the uh, you know trying to report also as quickly and as timely as we possibly could. So thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, everybody. And that's it for this episode of the podcast. Special thanks to my guests this time, Arnold and Porter partners Tirza Lawler, Craig Margolis, and Christian Sheehan. We appreciate their insights into the Supreme Court's questioning in the Shooter and Proctor cases. We expect the Court's decision sometime this summer, and I hope to have Tirza, Craig, and Christian back to discuss that ruling and the fallout for False Claims Act relators and defendants, whatever that may be. You can find links to further information about the topics we discussed in our show notes, you can find this and previous episodes of the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon. Be sure to follow us and subscribe. For the PubK Group, I'm Bill Olver. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright. Arnold and Porter providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the PubK Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer.